Welcome to the Core Principles Podcast. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you'll enjoy this lively discussion of relevant topics, which we attempt to examine through the lens of unchanging objective truth. Here's the host of the Core Principles Podcast, Clay Howerton. Thank you, Suzanne. I am honored to welcome to the program today the best-selling author whose new book, Live Not by Lies, is absolutely essential reading for everyone who wants to preserve liberty, and particularly for Christians. Rod Dreher, thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure being here. The title of your book, Live Not by Lies, comes from a 1974 essay by a very inspirational man. Would you explain why you chose that title and its significance to you? Yes, uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn is probably the best-known anti-communist dissident of the 20th century. He's best known for writing the Gulag Archipelago, which exposed the horror of the Soviet system of camps, labor camps, into which they dumped all their political prisoners and dissidents. Uh, He won the Nobel Prize uh, for for his work, and uh, it's just a man of towering moral significance. In 1974, the Soviets threw him out of their country because he was too much of a troublemaker. Just before his expulsion, he wrote an essay, a very short essay to send to his followers. The essay was called Live Not By Lies. And in it, he said that, you know, we, we may not have power here in this totalitarian state to overthrow the government or to resist the government in any significant way. But the one thing we can do is refuse to collaborate with the system of lies that is ruling over us. And he said that uh, people of integrity should do things like simply refuse to look like they're going along to get along. That if you're presented with something you know is false, don't say you believe it just to protect yourself. You have to be willing to suffer to do that. But by being willing to suffer for the sake of the truth, you win an important moral victory. And uh, Solzhenitsyn said, if we are not willing to do that, if we're willing to capitulate to this empire of lies, then we're no better than a herd of cattle. And we don't deserve our liberty. Well, reading this essay in a very, very different set of circumstances here in the United States in the 21st century, it still resonated, not because we're facing gulags over here. We're not. Uh, We're not facing the KGB coming in the middle of the night to knock down our doors and haul us off to prison. But we are facing a situation in which more and more uh, Christians, conservatives, and even liberals of goodwill are being forced to agree to things that we know are false, uh, that the, the hardcore left is pushing on us through our institutions in many cases. And if we don't agree with it, then we could lose our jobs, we could lose our status, we could lose our businesses. Uh, so far, we, we're, not on the, we're not losing our freedom, but that may come in the future. So what I want to do with this book is use Solzhenitsyn as an example to, to help Christians understand what we're facing and what it means to be not only a Christian, but a patriot and just a free man. It's so important, obviously, uh, to those of us who love liberty, which hopefully includes all of us. Uh, you caution that we in the United States are in a pre-totalitarian culture. And you explain, I think, from the perspective of Hannah Arendt, how to see totalitarianism coming. And some of the waypoints are things that are so evident right now, loneliness and isolation, 
losing faith in institutions and hierarchies, the desire to destroy propaganda, and so on and so on. How do you reconcile the fact that many in America think it could never happen here when it very obviously is happening right now? That's right. You know, Solzhenitsyn warned in the Gulag Archipelago that the greatest mistake that we in the West can make is to think that it can't happen here. Hannah Arendt, the great political theorist of the 20th century, she said the same thing. She said, whenever totalitarian governments are starting to come to power, there is inside each one of us an inner liberal saying, no, 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 it's not really happening here. It couldn't happen here. We're exceptional people. We're not exceptional people. And uh, as you say, Clay, Arendt herself wrote in her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, back in the 50s, she wrote about certain things, certain aspects of society that signal a society is preparing itself for totalitarianism. You just listed the ones that I, I wrote about in Live Not By Lies. These things were present both in pre-revolutionary Russia and in pre-revolutionary or pre-Nazi Germany, in Weimar Germany. And we're seeing them all play out right here in our country. Um, but we have this idea that totalitarianism involves you know, government agents coming in, as I said, to knock down the door, or it, it involves uh, Nazi, jackbooted Nazis marching down the street and so on. It's not true. Totalitarianism is a system of government that originated in the 20th century. It's a very authoritarian system that seeks to politicize every aspect of life, not just political power, but to politicize every aspect of life and to dominate it. We see this coming to us right now through political correctness. That's such an, an innocent sounding term, but it's a term that really signifies a totalitarian way of thinking. And we can maybe get into later in the podcast talking about how I think this is going to come upon us. But the key thing to answer your question is to realize it can happen here. And the one of the big ways they're getting away with so much of this stuff is so many Americans are completely clueless about what's going on. Yes, sir. Uh, education is vital, and I hope people will read this important book and understand it. Uh, it. It really is important. Modern liberals and leftists like to refer to themselves now as progressives, because, of course, everybody loves progress. You have an entire chapter devoted to the concept of progressivism as religion. And now I'm an engineer, scientist, and therefore sometimes mathematician. So I view things sometimes in other disciplines in mathematical terms. Progress is one of those things. In math, there are certain things called vector quantities, which means they have not only magnitude, but also direction. So clearly, progress would be a vector. It has a direction, and the direction is important. And when the progress that we are making is leading us directly towards the edge of a cliff, it seems like the prudent way forward should involve some sort of turning and possibly even a repenting, turning completely around the opposite direction. So I'd like to ask you, Rod Dreher, to explain the concept you introduced called the myth of progress. Mm -hmm. Well, by myth, I don't mean something that's untrue. I mean a story that we use uh, that to understand deeper meaning and, and the way things work in the world. Uh, the myth of progress is the story that we tell ourselves in the West and have been telling ourselves since the enlightenment in the 18th century, that history is moving along at a steady clip 
towards some sort of utopian end. Now, this is a Christian idea in, in essence. You know, as Christians, we believe history has a direction, that the Lord is a Lord of history. He came at a certain time to proclaim his, his presence, that he came as uh, incarnate as Jesus Christ to lead to the salvation of the world. And history is moving towards an ultimate culmination with the second coming of Christ. Now, that's a religious idea. It's one I believe in. In the Enlightenment, though, uh, this became secularized. And all the Enlightenment scholars, they tried to get rid of Christianity, but they came to believe that moving as a society towards more and more individual liberty, more freedom, more prosperity, and more scientific progress. Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels in the Communist Manifesto, they got very radical with this. And they, they said that eventually uh, history is... They said that history is made up of the clash between the classes, you know, and eventually there will be a communist revolution, which will be like the second coming in, in their idea. And all the, the state will wither away and everybody will live in perfect harmony once the exploiting capitalists have been dealt with. Well, I mean, this is false religion, but it's essentially a religious idea because the Bolsheviks, the, the Russian revolutionaries and other Marxist revolutionaries took this as gospel. They believed that they were acting with the forces to serve the forces of history, historical determinism. And this is why whenever you hear progressives, they might not even be Marxists, but they're still progressives in our country. They believe that history, the arc of history, bends towards justice, as Obama said, quoting MLK, uh, they believe that history is moving to a point where we are more and more free from the old superstitions of religion, but, but uh, free of the things that hold us back, like our, our families, uh, like devotion to place, to country, anything that, that keeps us from doing exactly what we want as free desiring people is considered regressive. And to be progressive then is to use technology, advanced technology, to free up the individual, even now as we see, to change his or her sex. So uh, the myth of progress in is what drives so many progressives. They don't care about the destruction they leave behind them. In the Soviet Union, they destroyed an entire nation and killed millions and millions of people. But uh, they don't want to think about that. We'll get it right next time. Let's just keep that dream of progress alive. As conservatives, we can fall victim to that sometimes. You know, we believe that we may believe that democracy, liberal democracy, is where the world is headed. And this is a version of the of the myth of progress. But I think here in our country, we have the, the thing we have to deal with most of all is this idea that it's all the history is all moving in one direction. Uh, we hear right now from the left in this country that. People like me, conservative Christians, were standing in the way of progress. History will be unkind to you, they tell me. Your kids will judge you harshly. Well, maybe they will, but that doesn't mean the kids will be uh, progressing towards greater truth, greater fidelity to Christ, and greater moral virtue. In fact, they could be regressing into a state of barbarism, and which I think is really happening right now. It all depends on what we consider, what's the goal towards which we are progressing. That's how you measure progress. Yes, indeed. Well, we have often distinguished rather simply between socialism and capitalism, but you detail uh, in fascinating way in your book, Live Not by Lies, that just because socialism is incompatible with liberty, which it is, capitalism certainly does not assure liberty. And you use terms like woke 
capitalism and surveillance capitalism to demonstrate how when companies are not restricted in scope and power and influence, they can oppress just as surely as governments might. How has that happened in China, for example, and how is that starting to happen here in the United States? Boy, this is such an important question. Yeah, I'm of the Reagan generation. I was uh, I was born in 1967, came a political age under Reagan. And conservatives in my generation have typically seen the enemy as big government. But we've been pretty naive about how big business, when it's in the wrong hands, it can also be harmful to conservative interests and to Christian interests. We saw this in a very powerful way, Clay, in 2015 in the state of Indiana, when the Indiana legislature, the Republican legislature and the Republican governor, Mike Pence, signed into law uh, a state version of the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act, uh, which would only have given religious believers an affirmative defense in law if they were ever taken to court for discrimination. Wouldn't have guaranteed that they won, that they would win, but it, you know, it, it gives them a defense. When that happened, suddenly major companies like Apple Computer, Salesforce, and others outside the state came down on the state of Indiana like an atomic bomb threatening economic uh, punishment for them if they didn't repeal this bigoted law. It had never happened before that big business took sides in the culture war in quite that way. It was tremendously effective. The state had to back down. And a week later, the state, uh, the Arkansas uh, legislature withdrew similar legislation after Walmart cleared its throat. What we've seen since then is, uh, is progressives in power in these major corporations use their corporate power and the economic leverage to uh, compel state legislatures not to adopt uh, religious liberty legislation. And in fact, they're pushing for pro-LGBT uh, teachings. Uh, now they're pushing since the summer, they begin pushing for so-called anti-racism uh, programs within their companies, which I believe are in fact a different form of racism, not anti-racism. And uh, we have to be very, very careful because as I say in the book, all these corporations are Google, Amazon, and others are hoovering up in personal data from all of us, from the internet we use, from our smartphones and other interaction with any smart device. They're storing this information and they will, they're trying to use it to figure out how to sell us things. Well, if you look over at what's happening in China, the Chinese government gets the same information from Chinese people and even more with uh, tools of surveillance. And they use it to assign Chinese people, a, each, each individual Chinese person, a social credit rating. If you do things the government considers socially positive, like downloading the speeches of Xi Jinping, for example, you get a higher rating. The government knows this because they're watching your computers and your smartphones and you get, using all this data. You get a higher rating, you get more privileges. If you do things that the government finds socially harmful, like going to church or meeting with dissidents, things like that, you get a lower rating and you find your privileges cut. You know, you can't, you won't be able to shop in the good stores. Your kids might not be able to go to college and so on and so forth. This is how they manipulate people politically to get conformity by manipulating their, their, their middle-class privileges. Here in America, we have the same capabilities right now in terms of gathering the data. What they don't have is the political support to do that to punish people by figuring out from that data if they are um, deplorable, 
so to speak. I think this is coming. I think that the government in the future will work with big business to operationalize this to put people like you and me uh, who don't go along with this liberal ideology and marginalize us uh, to keep us to, to keep us from participating fully in the economy at an extreme level, Clay. And this is real, you know, apocalyptic stuff. In China, they don't use cash, or they're they're getting to the point where they have they have a cashless society. Everybody there uh, does their daily commerce through their smartphones. It makes things a lot easier. But what this means is that if the government wanted to cut you completely out of the economy, they could do it with a flick of a switch, and you wouldn't have any way to buy or sell. This is something out of the book of Revelation. It, it, it might sound like crazy tinfoil hat stuff, but it's really happening in China. I think we're going to face this sort of thing here too. And we've got to be ready for it. We've got to fight it when they're trying to push it. And if it comes down to it, we're going to have to develop networks with Christians and conservatives to help each other when we are pushed out of the economy. These are sobering realities you have shared with us, Rod Dreher. In our next episode, we will talk about the solutions you offer in your book. Listeners, please get a copy of this important book, Live Not by Lies, by Rod Dreher. Now it's time for our special historical segment, featuring a practical example of how core principles are applied. On the 14th of October, 1912, presidential candidate Teddy Roosevelt was shot in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Roosevelt had a speech on several pages of paper, thickly folded in his breast pocket, and when the 32 caliber bullet impacted his chest, it first had to pass through that. Even with a bullet in his chest, he took out the bloody papers and gave his speech. As he was running for president as a member of the Bull Moose Party, he said, You see, it takes more than that to kill a bull moose. In his 1933 inaugural address, another Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, told Americans who were anxious about the economic hardships gripping the country, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Almost exactly 108 years after Teddy Roosevelt was shot, President Donald Trump was infected by SARS-CoV-2 and got the associated disease called COVID-19. This disease is especially harmful to persons over 70 years old, like President Trump, and news reports had many citizens convinced that he was at death's door. Of course, these are the same news media who have somehow convinced Americans that 9% of their countrymen, or nearly 30 million people, have died from the disease. So exaggeration is not unusual for them as they try to keep viewers glued to their programs for 24 hours per day as they sell advertisements. But President Trump followed the medical professionals' prescription protocols and within a few days was symptom-free. He told Americans, Do not be afraid. Do not let this dominate your life. This was a very, very important and correct message to everyone. Caution and prudence are wise, but fear is the wrong response. Of all the comorbidities claiming lives in the year 2020, fear is near the top of that list. 
Centers for Disease Control and Prevention Director Robert Redfield observed that suicide attempts and drug overdoses directly resulting from fear have affected more people directly than the disease that is the object of that fear. And the Bible teaches us that fear is the wrong response to the unknown, or even to known dangers. This is such an important point that God communicated it to us through His Word 365 times. Take heed. You don't have to listen to the president as he merely echoes the true advice, but listen to God as he repeats it over and over and over. Do not be afraid. Core Principles Podcast is produced in Paducah, Kentucky by Real Productions. Music is by Late July, L-E-I-G-H-T July. You can find our music on all streaming services or at latejuly.com. Thank you for joining us today for this episode of the Core Principles Podcast. Please visit core.buzzsprout.com for more information. And please share with your friends. We look forward to visiting with you again on our next episode.